0: Welcome to the Federalist Society Faculty Book Podcast, discussing Enlightened Democracy, The Case for the Electoral College, by Tara Ross. Thank you for tuning in. With the 2012 presidential election now behind us, the unique American presidential election system is fresh in the mind of the public. Some dismiss the electoral college as outdated, arguing that the system should be replaced by direct popular vote. Tara Ross provides an overview of the history of the Electoral College, from the founding era to the present, defending the college as an institution, and explaining how it protects our republic and promotes liberty. This second edition includes a section discussing the national popular voting legislative effort. Derek Mueller, associate professor at Pepperdine University School of Law, interviews Ms. Ross about her book. As always... The Federalist Society takes no position on particular legal or public policy issues. All expressions of opinion are those of the speakers. And now, Professor Mueller and Ms. Ross.
1: Great, Tara. Thanks for chatting with me today about enlightened democracy. We have the election now in hindsight. There were a lot of dire predictions, I think, coming in about whether or not there would be a tie in the Electoral College, whether or not one candidate was going to win the popular vote and the other candidate would win, win the Electoral College and we would have some sort of constitutional crisis. And I guess sort of as an opening question, none of that came to pass. Right? Once again, we had a successful presidential election with no serious crises. And I wonder, what is it about the Electoral College that attracts so much venom from a number of critics out in politics in the academy and these dire warnings that don't often seem to come to fruition.
2: Well, we do hear these dire warnings once every four years and I was asked about them a bunch of times this year also and I pretty much said every time I would be really, really surprised it happens. Um of course because of the winner take off system, even relatively narrow popular vote national popular vote totals can get translated into a much bigger margin like we saw this year. And I think that's a good thing because when you have one state, like Florida was undecided for a little while this year, and when you have these things going on, it doesn't mean that the whole country has to be in uncertainty the whole time about it. And we should know who our commander-in-chief is going to be. That is healthy for us just to not be tied up in lawsuits each and every presidential election year. I don't know. I think there are some – as to why there is still so much venom, I just think there are some people who value pure democracy – The person who gets the most votes wins, and they value that no matter what. And, you know, even in the wake of Obama's victory, I've noticed on Twitter and elsewhere, some of his supporters are still very, very upset about the Electoral College, which is confusing because they won. I just think at the end of the day, if you're going to value the Electoral College, you have to stop and think about it and think about why the founders did not do pure democracy, but they combined democracy with federalism, and they felt like there were important reasons to do that.
1: There are so many detractors, as you know, and you wrote Enlightened Democracy several years ago. You have a new edition out. What sort of inspired you to give this rousing defense of the Electoral College? Because it seems like there are mostly attacks on the Electoral College. What sort of inspired your defense?
2: Well, I- I never set out to be this person defends <laughs> the Electoral College. I mentioned in my intro that I broke my arm in law school and I couldn't take notes in class. And so that is really just why this happened. And if I had not broken my arm, I'm not sure I would ever have done this ever. But as I stumbled on this, not expecting that I'm going to learn about an institution that's invaluable. I think what I thought I was doing was just getting a paper and getting hours out of the way when I had a broken arm and couldn't deal with things. But what I discovered was, oh my gosh, this is this institution that nobody's ever taken the time to really teach me about it or to teach me the history or why it's important. And it turns out that I think it's one of the bedrock things holding our country together behind the scenes and just nobody knows or appreciates it. And so things have just kind of snowballed. Like I said, I didn't mean to, but I've progressed with my writing, also the Electoral College has come under attack separately. And so I think that it just became natural for me to step up to the plate and try to do what I can to help.
1: What exactly was the sort of large scale vision of the Electoral College? You've already alluded to the fact that direct democracy, it's not just about a majority popular will it's about something else that the founders envisioned that has been lost today and that we don't necessarily appreciate the same way. So was that sort of large-scale vision about what the Electoral College was designed to accomplish?
2: I think really the founders had a large-scale vision for their whole constitution, and the Electoral College flowed naturally from the compromises that were made during that process. But basically the founders just, they had a problem because They had just fought a whole revolution about the fact that they had no representation in parliament. They wanted to be self-governing. They thought that was really, really important. Risk their lives, given their family members had died, all of this stuff, because they wanted to be self-governing. But they were students of history, and they knew the history of pure democracies. In a pure democracy, of course, 51% rules the other 49%, no matter what. I often say in the wake of 9-11 and fear, anger, outrage, bigotry, whatever, 51% can do anything it wants. So as a matter of history, pure democracies tend to lead toward majority tyranny, and they implode. So the founders knew this, and they did not want to create that. So how do you allow a society to be self-governing but protect against these dangers. And the solution they came up with was to create a constitution that would combine many different types of governmental forms. Republicanism, small r, deliberation and compromise should be encouraged in our government. Federalism, the ability of states to act as states or on their um, on behalf of their citizens. And, of course, when they were putting together the Congress, how this looked was We're going to have a House with one person, one vote representation, purely Democratic. A Senate elected by the states, by the way, one state, one vote representation, a Republican arm. And the Electoral College, I think in many ways, it followed on the heels of this compromise and reflected many of the same principles. Of course, our number of electors is the same as our number of representatives plus senators combined. Further, as it works today, we have an Electoral College, which is a two-part election system, phase one, 51 purely democratic elections, one in each state plus D.C., and then after we've decided who will represent our states, which is what we did recently on election day, after we've decided and elected those electors, those electors go on to the second phase of the election, which is the federalist aspect of our election, the election among states electors to select the president.
1: It's interesting when you mention all of those other components of the House and the Senate and the executive and how they work together, and then also the role of the states, a lot of that is lost. We've enacted a 17th Amendment that essentially requires popular vote of senators. So our election of senators looks very much like our election of representatives, that once we've required things like one person, one vote, and equal proportional populations for congressional districts, we pretty much have this idea that... Everything sort of looks the same in our democracy. Why doesn't the president look the same as what we do in these other elections? Is it still worthwhile for us to keep that element when maybe we've moved on in some of these other areas?
2: Well, I think what I would say to that is just every time we've lost one of these elements, it's harmed our country. Can you reverse it? I don't know that you can. I would love to. But I think that we should at least just stop it here (laughs) and not get rid of one more protection that our Constitution gave us against majority tyranny.
1: As you note in your book, the Electoral College works a little differently than it does today, right? At the beginning, we had problems because we didn't have two parties. We didn't have electors able to vote for president and vice president separately. We had some changes in our system fairly early on, and now we have a slightly different system, but it's one I think you note is important and works a little differently, but continues to operate sort of at that macro level that the founders had of trying to prevent raw majority rule.
2: They definitely did not anticipate the rise of political parties or the winner-take-all system in every state. I don't think they necessarily thought that would happen, but I think that the great thing about the way it's operating is that it is serving the principles they wanted to serve. They wanted the people to select the president. And I think we do that. But they also wanted to protect against majority tyranny, especially tyranny by the large states. And I think we do that as well.
1: There was one chapter I really found interesting talking about the two of the big wrong winner cases or the so-called wrong winner instances where one candidate wins the popular vote, but it's the other candidate who wins the electoral college and that it strikes some as unfair that majority should always win, but I think you do a nice job of explaining why maybe the elections of 1888, the election of 2000, why those elections actually came out the right way, and that it wasn't a wrong winner case at all, but it was the kind of win for a candidate who garnered the kind of support that the Electoral College is designed to ensure. I wondered if you could talk about those two cases.
2: 1888 is a great place to start because we're not involved in the politics of the late 1800s, and we can maybe view it a little bit more ob- objectively. In 1888, Grover Cleveland won the popular vote, lost the electoral vote. At his popular vote, most of it was in a handful of southern states. He had very wide margins there, of victory. And Benjamin Harrison, by contrast, had done a better job of reaching out to people across regions The states he won were in the north all the way across to the northwest. Now, I think that that year, Benjamin Harrison was a better representative. It is better that he was president. We don't want to establish or encourage a system where a candidate like Grover Cleveland, who really just, whether it was perception or reality, was really just reaching out to a handful of states in one region, that person should not be president. We don't want that system in our country. Our country is too big, too diverse, too many different subcultures, industries, regions. We need to do something to encourage our presidential candidates to reach out as much as possible across those lines. And so that year, I think that was the right result. Grover Cleveland, by the way, (laughs) went back, learned his lesson, ran a better campaign four years later, and won the presidency in 1892. So I think the Electoral College, it worked. That was great. It did exactly what it was supposed to do. And honestly, in 2000, I think it was a very similar dynamic. Probably anybody that has seen that map of the county vote, you know, where it's almost all red with pieces of blue in the large states and big urban areas, it came out with the right result. And if you look at the numbers, George Bush just did a little bit better job of building a coalition that reached across lines. Al Gore was too centered in urban areas and among particular kinds of constituencies.
1: I think also people tend to look at the 2000 election and they might have some distaste for the recount in Florida, the closeness of the vote, the Supreme Court's litigation, all that kind of discussion. But really, that was sort of an entirely different question. The question as to who wins Florida is a slightly different question as to who wins the Electoral College as opposed to the national popular vote. And they are slightly distinct questions, right?
2: Yeah, the Electoral College gets a lot of flack for stuff that had nothing whatsoever to do with the Electoral College. I mean, if you do or don't like the recount law in Florida or do or don't like that the Supreme Court was involved, none of that stuff has anything to do with the Electoral College, except the only thing the Electoral College did contribute to that situation was it isolated the problems to Florida. Now, I would say that's a good thing. So instead of being mad about one Supreme Court decision, about Florida, the alternative is what? You're going to be mad about five of them, about New Mexico and Florida or whatever it is? Right? I mean, it isolated the problems to Florida. And that's good because otherwise we would have recounts and lawsuits potentially in every precinct of the country. That would be a more normal situation, I think, if we'd do something to help that.
1: The isolation point maybe is a good one to raise now. We had a situation a week and a half before the election where a hurricane struck a part of the country. And we saw places like Maryland and North Carolina suspending their early voting. We saw the National Guard setting up tents in West Virginia to help people vote. We saw New York allowing sort of anyone anywhere in the state to cast a ballot for president, even if it wasn't in their home precinct. We saw New Jersey allow vote by email, vote by fax, and allow extending that deadline to 72 hours after the close of the election. I mean, what does the Electoral College do for that particular situation, right? Doesn't it help us isolate those problems?
2: It seems like, it, look, at least everybody in New York is facing the same problem, right? And probably that constituency is a lot more similar than down here in Texas, where we weren't having any problems at all. And with a direct election system, of course, Texas could have taken advantage of that situation to turn out in larger numbers. And knowing that there may be with a lower turnout in New York this year than there would have been otherwise, and that's not a good situation. New York is conducting its own independent election for the New York electors, and so whatever is going on in the state, at least they can deal with it within the state, and the impact is not something that is necessarily felt everywhere else in the country.
1: There are a couple of reform efforts you note in the book, and I'll come to the larger one in a moment, but I wanted to ask about proportional representation, because at least among my students, among my peers, there are a number of people who ask, why can't we just have proportional allocation of the electors? So we have a state like Ohio with 18 electors. Why don't we just divide it up based upon the percentage of the vote you get? And so one candidate might get 10 electors, the other candidate might get eight. Wouldn't that be a better system rather than this winner-take-all system, which puts A lot of emphasis on winning all or nothing, that just a few votes here or there can turn a large block of electoral votes in your direction. I know it's left to the states to do that, but why isn't that a better system than the one we have now?
2: Well, you know, of course, the great thing about our system is anybody could do that. Maine and Nebraska have changed their systems, and they do something slightly different. If a state were going to change its system, I think a congressional district system is logistically just more doable than a proportional system. My main problem with the proportional system from a logistical standpoint is just that if you're in a state with nine electors and you've got some percentage and then you've got this elector and maybe 100 votes makes the difference between I'm going to round up versus I'm going to round down. Because without a constitutional amendment, you have to award a whole elector. This is a person. You can't divide that person into parts award part of an elector. So I think mainly it's the rounding problem and the lawsuits that could ensue potentially over at least one elector in every state, because, well, if we do this, we can round up. If we do that, we can round down. Should we round to a 100th? Should we round to 10th? Should we round to... There's just so many questions like that. What's fair? And so personally, I would prefer, if a state's going to divide its vote, I would prefer a congressional district system. And that is Slightly different, because you just give one elector to whoever won the congressional district, um, each congressional district, and then you have two at-large votes for the state, however the whole state vote goes. I think that would be better. I think there are pros and cons to that. As a Federalist, I fear that what we would really do is, instead of having a swing state problem with candidates who cater to whatever industry is important in Ohio or Iowa or, you know, whatever the swing states are this year, they would... Instead, be catering to swing districts because, of course, the vast majority of congressional districts in this country are specifically drawn to be very safe for one political party or the other. You're going to have all these districts. People say, I live in a safe red state, I live in a safe blue state, I'm ignored, which, of course, people say. I don't think it's true, but they say that. The same thing will translate to the districts. And I think we will find that more and more local matters are being taken up at the federal level because they think they have to to win a swing district in a presidential election. And, of course, you've got gerrymandering problems that could get worse. They're already bad enough.
1: So in closing, we have another large reform proposal on the table, right? And that's one of the things that I think inspires a lot of the additions of the new edition of your book, The National Popular Vote. I wondered if you could give a little background on that and what you view as – problematic for its application.
2: The National Popular Vote is a group based in California, and they're asking states to change the way that they allocate their electors. So, of course, we've been talking about the winner-take-all system. Texas, with 38 votes, gives all 38 electors to Mitt Romney because he won Texas this year. Instead, they would say, well, Texas, instead of giving your 38 electors to Mitt Romney, you should give your 38 electors to Barack Obama because he won the National Popular Vote. And if they had their way, this is what would happen. They're doing it through an interstate compact. So it's basically a contract that states are signing. They will do it all at once when they do it. Right now, eight states plus D.C. have agreed to sign this contract. Of course, they did not award their electors that way this year because there were not enough states signed on. The contract goes into effect when 270 electors are represented in that contract because 270 electors can win an election. Now, the people who are pushing this will say, oh, it's just states' rights should be able to do whatever they want to do etc i think they would have a much stronger leg to stand on if they weren't trying to operate through this contract but the contract says no we don't think this is good for our state unless everybody else does it too and they want to do joint state action and that starts to look suspiciously like an end run around the constitutional amendment process because the amendment process requires 38 states too hard they think to get 38 states So instead of 38 states, we're going to have a contract that could be signed by as few as 11 states, if you've got the 11 biggest states to sign it. They're just doing it because it's easier, not because this is about states' rights. I think it's going to be a huge problem. I think that when they get closer and they have enough states that have signed on to it with 270, if they get that far, there's going to end up being lawsuits from all sorts of directions about this idea.
1: And logistically, What is the problem with a national popular vote system when we won't have a national election, right? I think you alluded to the fact several times that we have 51 separate states running elections. What happens when we decide that they're not gonna count solely in their own states, but that suddenly we decide we're just gonna all mix them together and blend them into a single national popular vote total?
2: Right, I kind of divide the problems into three parts philosophical problems with it, legal problems and logistical problems. And the logistical problems that you're alluding to, they are, look, right now we live in a country where there are 51 sets of basically local election laws dealing with the presidency and the elections and how you do that. Every state has their own ideas about how you get on the ballot or can felons vote or what are our early voting hours, all of this sort of stuff. Now, If you're going to try to pretend like you can take those 51 different sets of laws and squash them together and come up with one coherent national outcome, it's not going to happen. What's going to happen is there's going to be lawsuits, there's going to be problems, there's going to be somebody in Illinois who says, that person in Mississippi got more time to vote than I did, that's not fair, I'm going to file a lawsuit. They claim to love democracy so much. The most basic rule of democracy is that every voter in an election pool should be operating under the same set of laws. It's very basic principle. They're violating it egregiously, and they don't care. And so to me, like that by itself is just evidence that what I think they really think is coming is that They know, uh, one of the AMRs. now I've forgotten which one, is on record saying that, look, the way to deal with this is that we are going to create a national election code eventually. I think that the people who are supporting NPV, many of them know that the natural progression will be to a federal election code and probably a constitutional amendment just to put in place what they are doing. And so right now when they are in state legislatures and they are selling it, as state's rights, this is your state's rights to award your electors however you want to, that's not really what's going to happen. What's really going to happen is we are going to move to one federal election scheme, by the way, probably controlled by an agency who will have people appointed by the incumbent president. That seems to me by itself to be a little bit of a problem. I think there's a lot of protection for us in the fact that every state can choose its own electors however it wants to, in our democratic, federalist system that will be destroyed if NPV is passed.
1: Well, this is Derek Muller. I've been talking with Tara Ross, the author of Enlightened Democracy. Tara, thanks for talking with me today.
2: Thanks for having me. Thank
0: you for listening to this faculty book podcast. For more podcasts, as well as audio and video of past Federalist Society events, please visit our website at www.federalistsociety dot o-r-g forward slash multimedia.